Amen. Every song we have sung this morning has so many ties to passage. It is amazing to me to see the way in which God works all things together for His good. His glory, our good. And so this morning I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles. I should say open your Bibles, because if some of you were awake, turning on your Bibles means we're confiscating them, but we actually are not taking Bibles. We want you to open your Bibles and find your way to 2 Samuel. We're going to begin a series that we started uh, last year. We finished 22, and now we are, or 23, and now we are going to finish 2 Samuel this year. This is a pivotal time in Israel's history, and it is a time that is of great importance in our own individual histories, as we've already reflected on and sang this morning. We worship the God who hears us in our sorrows, who is our strength when all has been taken from us and there is nothing left. He is our treasure. So before we begin our study in 2 Samuel, let's, let's go to that one God, that true sovereign creator of heaven and earth, and let us beseech his favor upon us. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. His merit, his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness, his beauty. He is our means of peace with you, and he is the one who gives us access to you. And we praise Him and you for this great salvation that you have given to us. We pray your blessing on the word as it goes forth. We have sung it. We have heard it read. And now we look to it for application, for understanding of the great and mysterious work of God of bringing salvation to the nations. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on it. But we also pray that you would bless the hearer. I'm mindful of the fact that in this room and in this space that you have created, that there are many who indeed are sorrowing. Our prayer today is that they would sorrow with hope. We pray for those who are sick, that they would be strengthened in body and in soul. We pray for those who are lost both spiritually lost, that you reveal the glorious Christ to them this morning through your word. We pray for those who are lost in a season of life, who are looking for direction. We pray that they would take the admonition of Scripture and they would inquire of you, where should I go? What should I do? And we know, Lord, that as we pray to you in Jesus' name, and we know that you look upon your children with favor, for they are clothed in righteousness, that you will hear these prayers and you will answer them. And so we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but there doesn't seem to be an original idea in Hollywood anymore. How many Fast and Furious are there? I've lost track. I mean, every, everything is being rebooted, relaunched. How many iterations has the parent trap gone through? There is a real good one, and then there's not. Uh, my kids have told me this. It seems like Hollywood has fallen in love with sequels, and even Disney, the pinnacle of the greatest animators of all times can't come up with an original idea. It seems like as a society we have lost the ability to tell a story, to create a story that's compelling. But that's not the case with this new series that we begin today from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. It is packed with appalling stories as well as exciting stories. 
And we recount this transition from Israel living under the rule of judges who were sent to deliver them from their enemies because of Israel's repeated forays into idolatry and wickedness. And God would send them out, into the, the, send the nations in to captivate them and enslave them. And the judges would deliver them. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, we see the last judge who anoints Saul, the people's choice, to be king. And the rest of Samuel is us seeing that Saul is not indeed the king that, that the people need. He was, in fact, the king they wanted. He mirrored their heart on so many levels. And then we're introduced in 1 Samuel chapter 16 to a young man named David who has anointed Saul's successor. And the rest of 1 Samuel is is this back and forth as Saul chases David around the countryside knowing his future is, is in jeopardy because David is there in the wings waiting and Saul is trying to kill David. And David is fleeing and fleeing. And as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, we've seen that David has fled the land of Israel, and he has taken up residence in Philistia. And in fact, when the Philistines gathered for war against Israel, David was prepared to march out with them until the commanders of the Philistines' army put an end to it in 1 Samuel chapter 29. They said, no, no, no. This guy, what better way for him to appease his former master than by delivering us over to him? He cannot go with us. God delivered David from a a precarious moment of having for the very first time to raise his sword against his own countrymen. And David and his men, they marched the long distance back home to their, their city of Ziklag. And strangely enough, as they come up over the hill overlooking the location, they see it is all burning. They arrive to find that their homes are destroyed, their wives and their children are gone. Everything they've owned has been taken. They weep, they lament, they cry out to God, help us, what do we do? Somehow they discover a trail and they follow that trail and they lead, it leads them to the armies of the Amalekite raiders who had sacked Ziklag. And God gives a great victory. David and his men are able to recover every single life that was taken and every single object that was taken and even much spoil. That's what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Meanwhile, the armies of Israel are being destroyed by the Philistines and Saul and his three sons are slain. That's the lead up to the opening of 1 Samuel chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at chapter 2, but chapter 1 is important for us because it's the bridge between David and Saul to just David. So if you don't have a Bible, page 255 in those blue Bibles in the chairs around you, you're going to be, it'll help you a lot to be looking in your copy of the Scripture or that copy of the Scripture and following along. Uh, we're, as we move from a gospel to a Old Testament narrative, we're covering a lot more territory, and so I want to make sure that you have access to it and you can read it. So here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we, we are told that on the third day after David and his men returned from rescuing their families and recovering their possessions, a man shows up who had come from the camp of Israel, in fact, Saul's camp. He approaches them. He's got news from the battlefront. And he tells David and his men that the Israelites were defeated. Saul and Jonathan are dead. And when David asks, how did he know these things? He explains that he happened upon the mortally wounded Saul. And that the king, knowing that his life was going to, that he was going to die soon, didn't want to suffer any longer. And he asked this Amalekite to take his life. That's there in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1. And then the man, to prove his story, he presents the king's crown and his armlet. News runs through David and his soldiers' hearts and minds racing. They weep, they mourn. 
And then based on this man's testimony that he laid uh, a hand on the Lord's anointed and took his life, David took his life. And then in verses 17 through 27, we see the profound sorrow of David. Even though the man who had been his father-in-law, who had been his king, had become his enemy, even in spite of that, David was not happy with the news of hearing of Saul's death. He wrote a song about it, a lament. And the conclusion of chapter 1 is that he required this to be taught to the people of Judah. And now we arrive at our passage. Saul was dead. Ziklag has been destroyed. What should David do? When you and I are faced with decisions like that, well, let's just be honest. It's very rare that we're going to be faced with a decision like that. Maybe your decision is, should I take this job or stay with the one I have? Should I pursue this degree or this degree? Should I move or stay? Should I continue working on a marriage that seems dead years ago? Should I give money to the church for the support of missions or should I continue to spend it on my own needs and desires? We see something from David that is instructive for all of this and it begins right here in chapter 2 and verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. If there's only one thing you get out of this entire sermon this morning is this. Ask God for help. Pray and seek His will for your life. And you will find that He answers those prayers. He will give the help. David inquired of the Lord. You remember at one point, Saul sent Doeg the Edomite to kill all of the priests Because David showed up one day in front of the ark, fleeing from Saul, who tried to assassinate him in his own house while he was in bed. And he takes the the sword of Goliath from wrapped up in claws behind the ark of the the covenant. And the priest gives him the, the food or the bread that was laid out, the holy bread. And David then leaves. And word of this gets to Saul. And Saul thinks the priest is in collusion with David. And so he kills him and all of the priests. Yet one escaped, and he had been traveling with David since then. And so perhaps David goes to Abiathar, and he says, Inquire the Lord of me. Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came there, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's pause here for a moment. We see that God has now established a kingdom. It's established with a visible king in David. He's made king over Judah. One tribe, yes, But this is a progressive work of God to bring about his kingdom on the earth. And what we see initially is David seeking the Lord and waiting on God to fulfill his promises. So David, in the verse verse, he seeks the Lord. What does God think about this matter? Now, given the fact that he has a home that is no longer there, 
Given the fact that his enemy is dead, one might think it quite obvious what David should do. Grab the throne. Ascend to it. But David doesn't do what may come naturally to us. He restrains himself. He confines himself. Hebron is the area just miles away from where David grew up in Bethlehem. It is the the area geographically where his two wives are from. There's all of his friends and all of his families for the very first time. And perhaps a decade or more, David would actually be able to live in safety among his own clan, his own family. Now, what seems like, oh, this is a given, David lays it before the Lord and says, what shall I do? Shall I go up here? And God tells him, go. And notice a second question David asks, where should I go? He's not just looking for a crack in the opening to just jump through it. He wants to hear clearly from God, what is your will about this matter? And God tells him, go to Hebron. So David does. He seeks the Lord. He seeks the city in which the Lord would choose to place him. And then he goes. Hebron is an important city. It had a long history prior to David's time. The elevation of 3,000 some feet makes it ideal for observing the, the valleys around it for enemies. It makes it a strategic place to defend. But it's also... Uh, it was the, right on the edge of the Valley of Eskol, which takes us back to Numbers 13. It was one of the cities <clears throat> in which the 12 tribes scoped out, spied upon before the conquest. And that valley was lush and fertile. It was also the location of the cave of Machpelah. Man, I don't know if I said that right. Maybe that's why you don't recognize it. But this is the cave that Abram bought from the Hittites. It's the cave where Abram and Sarah are buried. It's the cave where Isaac and Rebekah are buried. It's the cave where Israel, Jacob, and Leah are buried. I mean, this is a very significant city. It was also a Levitical or a priestly city. And it was also a city of refuge, according to Joshua chapter 20 and 21. But beyond these historical and perhaps strategic facts, Hebron was also far enough away from the Philistines and from Saul's forces that it served as an ideal place for David to live. And David submitted himself to the Lord. Look at verses 2 and 3. He, the Lord gave him the desire of his heart David obeyed, he brought his family and his men into the city and the surrounding area, and they made it their home. And then we see that those who seek God end up seeing God at work. Looking at verses 4 through 7, David is not having to force anyone's hand. The leaders of Judah come to Hebron and they anoint David king, and thus this small city of real significance and importance becomes the new capital for the tribe of Judah. Saul's monarchy was birthed by the people's demand for a king, but here David's rule is the result of God's choice. As I mentioned a while ago, uh, 1 Samuel 16, we see that Samuel anointed David as Israel's first king. Now, all these years later... Something is beginning to take place. The promises that God made is starting to be fulfilled. Even though it's only one tribe, it is not a small thing. It's the beginning of God's plan to bring His salvation to all nations. This is a huge day in the redemptive story. Because God has chosen a man to rule visibly on the earth. And it gets just a brief mention by Samuel's, the writer of Samuel. And yet, we see that God is active. He fulfills his word. His people ought to be rejoicing. And friends, when we see God answer prayer, it is no small thing. There are four members of our church who are in Scotland right now. Joel and Kimmy Harris and Mike and Ruth Clevenger. They're there on behalf of South Canyon to investigate partnership with a missionary over there, a gospel work 
We, we sent a team last summer to Africa. We've got members of this church who will travel around the world to share the gospel and do gospel work. When God answers our prayers for safety and for blessed, where people will hear the gospel and receive it and be strengthened by it and be changed by it, this is no small thing. We see even in the generosity of God's people in caring for members within this church by giving beyond their offerings to help a family in need. This, too, is an answer to prayer. We need to start seeing how God is working, and we need to rejoice in Him. Notice, as the men of Judah come to anoint David as their king, they also bear word of what happened to Saul's remains. And they testify to the bravery and the faithfulness of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And David sends them official ambassadors from the new king in verses 5-7. through seven. He's grateful, and he sends a blessing to them in verses 5 and 6. He greets them in the covenant name of Yahweh. And thank them for their loyalty to Saul. And then he says, I'm praying for you that God would continue to show his steadfast love and faithfulness to them. You see, they had showed a covenant level of faithfulness to Saul. And now David is saying, our covenant-keeping God, may he continue to show his faithfulness to you. And then David makes a promise to them. You look at the end of verse 6. He said he would do good to them because of their steadfast love and loyalty to Saul. And then David encouraged them and invited them, be strong, strengthen your hands. Embrace me just as you had Saul. Saul's gone. Judah has made me their king. Now to the ears of some, it may sound like the David who was patient to wait on the Lord has now kind of taken a little bit of an opportunity here to use a collective mourning experience as a means to advocate for his own rule. And maybe he's abandoned any plans to wait on the Lord and begun to work salvation by his own hand. If he could just get the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who were part of the tribe of Benjamin, to throw in their hat with him, maybe it would, just be, it would add to the tribe of Judah, of those that support David. What's interesting about Jabesh-Gilead is it's right between where David is in Hebron and where we will see Abner is in Mahanim. Based on chapter 1, though, I don't think David is manipulating things for his own gain. I believe that David is extending sincere appreciation for these men, their bravery and their deeds. He's expressing his gratitude and his respect What would we expect from the guy who had just written a long lament about Saul and Jonathan and actually required the people of his tribe to memorize it? Does it sound like he's angling for opportunities? David, already as a king, is exercising justice and equity. He he has the ability to rule and live peaceably with all men. So what do we make of all this? Here's some application for us this morning. We need to seek the Lord and then we need to obey Him. When He speaks, we need to follow. Where He leads, we need to follow. This is the path to life. And under the the old covenant, uh, the Spirit of God was not a permanent indwelling in God's people. And God said that A day is coming when all that would change. And so Ezekiel, the prophet, writes in chapter 36 that God declared, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The transformation from people who struggled to obey God's rules to being a people who were marked by loving one another and following God is this regeneration that we experience when we receive the gospel. It was accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. All who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins receive this Spirit of God, this permanent indwelling to know God and to walk with Him. And so let us not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit.
David was doing good, as we saw in 1 Samuel, and yet he was suffering for it. What about you and I, who are doing the right thing? What should we do? Well, we should keep doing good. What we learn is that the book of Samuel, first and second, which were once one book in the Hebrew, now have been split into two, uh, they were written during the early years of Rehoboam's reign. He is Solomon's son, David's grandson. It was during Rehoboam's ascension to the throne after his father, Solomon, died that the, the nation split along these fault lines of Judah and the rest. And so, when the book is being written, it is a time of division within the people of God. Rehoboam is suffering. <clears throat> he is no longer the king over twelve, but just two tribes. Perhaps, perhaps, these words that Solomon shares with his son Rehoboam originally came from David. Please hear from Proverbs chapter 3. So when you are suffering for doing good, keep doing what's good. What does Solomon say in Proverbs 3? My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And listen to what he says. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. When you suffer for doing good, that is not the pull the pin, blow things up, It's time to get out and escape. No, we are instructed to not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake us. We are instructed to do good and to be patient and wait upon the Lord. And so Christian, if you are suffering right now, I encourage you to persevere with steadfastness. David waited many, many years And even when God's plan began to be shaped and revealed, it was still years more before it was fully realized. Learn to be patient in your pursuit of Jesus. You will struggle with things. And there may be long seasons of suffering. There may be years indeed where it seems as though no good thing happens except somehow God keeps our faith alive. Just as we sang, when all that we possess is gone, Christ is our treasure. The same loving kindness that God used to draw us to Himself in salvation is the same Spirit of grace that has the power to strengthen you and I to cause us to persevere. And the more that we walk in the Spirit, the more our confidence in God grows David's greater son, the founder and perfecter of our faith, gave us a pattern to follow. The writer of Hebrews says this, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In spite of opposition and trial and suffering and disappointment and hardship, let me urge you to keep your eyes fixed on your Savior. The very next verse in Hebrews 12 says this, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Speaking of Jesus. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Whether the diagnosis is cancer or it's unemployment, or whether unexpected costs have come that have wrecked your plans for the summer and put you in debt. Trust your Lord and wait for His deliverance. We sang in this we know that God is who He says He is. He will do what He says He will do. 
and he will be who he's always been to us. Our hope is in God alone. Our strength is in his mighty name. Our peace in the darkest day remains Jesus. Now, the passage doesn't end here. We see all these good things that God is doing in David's life. We see his faith, his persistence in that faith, his obedience and his humbling himself, dependent on the Lord. But in contrast to David, we see the dark side of the moon, as it were. Let's pick up in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. We see a kingdom that God has established. A kingdom that seeks him and follows him. And in contrast to that, we see a kingdom that man establishes. Abner is opposing God's rule on this earth and is seeking to accomplish his own plans. That's what we see throughout the rest of this chapter. There's no mention, is there in verses 8 or 9, of Abner praying? Of seeking the Lord? No, what he does He sees and hears what is going on down in Judah. And instead of throwing in his lot with David and recognizing him as the rightful king, after all, he was anointed to be king, Saul's successor. Abner grabs a surviving son, a man named Ishbosheth, who's 40 years old, and he makes him a king. Ishbosheth as we will see over chapters 2 through 4, functions more as a pawn than a prince. Abner took upon himself the role of the kingmaker. He is standing in can't even cast a shadow. In chapter 3, Abner is going to pass all this off as steadfast love and faithfulness and loyalty to Saul. But we should not be fooled by his words. He knew that God had declared David would be king over Israel after Saul. In fact, we will read this twice in chapter 3. Once, Abner will say this to Ishbosheth, and then a second time, he will say it to all of the leaders of Israel. He will tell them, this is what God has promised, and we've been longing for this. Why don't you just join me in making him king? Perhaps he heard this from Saul's own lips in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where David could have taken his life when he went in to use the bathroom in a cave, a cave in which David and his men were hiding in. David snipped off a part of his robe, and then he came out after Saul had left, and he says, King, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. And what does Saul say? Behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Abner knew the truth and rejected it. He knew what God was doing and he is resisting it. This is not passivity. This is active rebellion. Notice the geography. Here is Ishbosheth being made over everything that's East River, not East River like in South Dakota, but East River like in the Jordan River, the, the land of Gilead and Manasseh, and all of the northern tribes, everything but Judah. Ishbosheth is now the king over. And the new capital is no longer in Gibeah where Saul reigned. Because that was taken over by the Philistines in that last great battle. Instead, Abner has moved across the Jordan River and set up a capital in the city of Mahanaim. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. This is the place where Jacob, on his way back from living with Laban for 20 years, was met by angels of God. And he named that place God's Camp or Mahanaim. I wonder, was Abner 
attaching, taking the historical significance of this location and trying to marry church and state, as it were, and say this is God's camp and this is a political stronghold. Uh, his, his ambition is unveiled that God is going to protect us. He is going to do, this is a new beginning. Did this contribute to the selection of this site for the new capital? I don't know. But if it's true, it's just yet another example of how deeply ingrained idolatry is in the heart of God's people. You see, we can attach superstition and ideas to all kinds of things. And this inevitably proves to be a stumbling block for us in every age. God had revealed himself in unique ways in specific places. But instead of trusting God, ancient Israel often attached spiritual power to places like Shechem, like Bethel, like even in the New Testament as we finished John's Gospel last week. What was the spiritual place of power? It was the temple. They were not interested in God. They were interested in their religion. You and I might even struggle with the same thinking. You know, I've got to go back to my Bethel. I've got to go back to the place where God spoke to me, whether it was a camp or a church, a congregation. There's there's some significance. There's spiritual power here. And we may put too much on that. Inevitably, we end up acting just like our forebears, Adam and Eve, who traded the presence of God for disobedience. Abner is just one person in a long line who have rejected God's rule and will. We just saw this with the Jews and Herod and Pilate. All rejected Jesus as their king. We must strive to keep first things first. So let us always seek the Lord and follow where he leads. As Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David learned that lesson the hard way. He lived it first before he wrote it. That in spite of being driven from his homeland, in spite of not being able to worship at the tabernacle, in spite of the threat of injury and loss of life, David learned that God will make known to him the path of life. And that in God's presence, wherever David went, God was with him, and there is fullness of joy and pleasures. The narrator provides some details in verses 10 and 11 of this two kingdoms. And reconciling these dates of one king ruling for two years and David being stuck, as it were, in Hebron for seven and a half, that's not what we're after. I think they just simply demonstrate the futility of opposing God. You see, this puppet king only makes it two years. While David's confident faith that God will keep his promises, David just remained faithful, waiting on the Lord. He was not going to move preemptively. What does Psalm 37 say? But David once again speaks to us, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. David was not going to let himself be moved to act in presumptions and sin, even though those around him seem to succeed in doing so. And so, Christian, if you find find yourself in a place of distress or hardship or uncertainty about what to do next, please hear the word of the Lord this morning. Seek him with your whole heart. Trust him and obey him. And know that he will act in his good time and in his good purposes. Why do you think the scriptures record so many examples of God doing the impossible on behalf of his people? Because God wants to encourage us to trust him. 
and wait to see his great salvation. Abner opposed God and his king. We shouldn't be surprised to see the same thing happening in our day. What's the difference between Abner? One sought the Lord and obeyed God. The other acted on his own ambition and resisted God. And the same is true for us. We must not be deceived that those who seek the Lord will indeed receive instructions that lead to life, but all who disobey God will be destroyed. Looking at verses 12 through 22, and I'm just going to summarize this last part of this chapter as we wrap things up this morning. In verses 12 through 17, Abner leaves the north and heads to the south. Abner leaves the city of Mahanaim and he heads down to Judah. He is initiating aggression. The geography tells us this. If you've got a Bible atlas or a Bible map, look it up. One is East River to the north and the other one is in the southern part of Israel. This is a strategic distance. It's not like they bumped into one another at the ice cream shop. He's going out of his way to pick a fight. And what does he do but the same thing that we see in David's experience with Goliath in 1 Samuel. He, they send champions out. They sit down by the pool of Gibeon. And Abner is the one who initiates it. Hey, i got 12 guys here who are the cream of the crop. Why don't you put your best men, your champions, up against my guys, and let's see what happens. On the first move, all 12... From both sides, 24 men's lives are lost like that. And then a great battle erupts, and it spreads all over Gibeon, and then it spreads into the hills. Abner and his men are defeated. Joab and his forces are chasing them and smiting them down. And there's a great victory that day, but there's also a bitter loss. The aggressor has been defeated. Asahel We see in verses 18 through 23, one of Joab's brothers is chasing Abner. This guy's fast. He's described as quick as a gazelle. And he's chasing Abner. Perhaps he's hoping cut off the head of the snake and this all ends. Or maybe it's more selfishly like, dude, this is a trophy. If I can bring him home, everybody is going to think of me as a mighty warrior. In regardless... Abner realizes who's chasing him, and he knows the wrath of Joab, and he begs Asahel, turn aside, strike down somebody else, take their spoils, don't make me defend myself. But Asahel wouldn't stop. And so Abner runs him through with his spear. And when all those forces of Joab are catch up to where Abner or Asahel laid, they stopped and stood still. Seeing him dead brought home the cost of this war. This is a war, and Abner acted in self-defense. We're going to talk more about this in chapters 3 and 4 next week. But now the one who had, who had initiated war, who had called for a fight, what do we see in verses 24 through 28? But Abner and his men, they, they ascend to a hill, as Joab and Abishai, his brother, and their forces close in on Abner and his forces, the sun is going down, and Abner's men gather behind him to make a final stand on top of a hill in verse 25. And this defeated aggressor who started all this with the bold and proud words of let the young men arise and compete for us is now crying out for peace under the guise of brotherhood. How convenient it is that he brings up this note that we are of the same family. After all, Israel was one family, many tribes, but those were the descendants of 12 sons. Joab stops. Verses 27 and 28, he calls his men off. Abner goes home in defeat. Joab returns home mourning his brother, but he is a victor. And so in verses 29 through 32, we see that Abner and his army spend all night and the next morning marching back to Mahanaim, whereas Joab and his forces return to Gibeon, they collect their dead, and the head count reveals something pretty astounding. David lost 20 men, while Abner lost 360. 
Mind you, the initial battle at the pool in Gibeon cost each side 12. So all the hours that followed after that, it cost David an additional eight men versus Abner 348. Why do these numbers matter? The superiority of David's forces. God gave them a victory. These men were battle-hardened. They had been fighting Philistines and Amalekites. They had spent years on the run. They had never, to this point, ever raised their hand against their brothers. And when they acted in self-defense, when Abner, as it were, invades David's kingdom, what can Joab do but rise up and... And you just got to wonder, as Asahel is carried to his home in Bethlehem and buried in his father's tomb, and Job and his men march south all night, arriving at Hebron at sunrise, sin never makes sense. It doesn't. The Bible is full of stories of people who fought against the Lord, and it doesn't make sense. You look around, Everywhere you turn in our world, we see the wicked actions of men and women and the disastrous consequences that follows. It defies explanation. Why do we keep going back to things to substitute for God? Whether it's pornography, or whether it's gambling, or whether it's alcohol, or drugs, or whatever it is, pleasure upon pleasure. We think that these things have consequences and that somehow it will be different this time. It doesn't make sense. It reveals only this. Just how twisted and perverse the human heart is. How much, in fact, apart from Christ changing our hearts to give us that new heart that we read about in Ezekiel 36, if we don't have that heart, then we truly hate God. We hate Him. And we will continue to fight against his advancement of his kingdom and his purposes. Now, we we have to close with the hope of the gospel because we've got good news and then we've got a lot of bad news. And if we find ourselves like Abner resisting God, well, how can any of us change if our hearts are so deceptive and deceitful and wicked? How can we be changed to, to love God and to seek him? Well, we have to pray that God intervenes. We use the same means of grace that David did. We seek the Lord until he is found. He has the power to break through our hardness and our sinful desires and changes. We sang about this in all hail the glorious Christ. He surpasses our temptations. He conquers our hearts. His great love can overcome death and condemnation. What should you do if you're suffering the consequences of your sin? Simply seek the Lord. Moses, Moses, that great prophet of God, told the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, as they stand on the brink of the promised land, you guys are going to blow this up historically. It is going to be the most epic fail that's never been seen on YouTube, but exists nonetheless. And he says, you will... Be such idolaters that God will spit you out of this land that he has promised to you, and then he is going to scatter you to the nations, those whom survive the wars. And Moses doesn't stop there. He leaves them with hope. Because he says, when you wake up in the midst of your suffering... Here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Make a note of this. You're going to want to read this later this afternoon. Seek when you wake up in the midst of your sin and the consequences for it. Here's these words. Seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. There is hope 
in the gospel. world of sinful man sent his son to atone for us and to live the life we couldn't in order to draw us to him. We see in this narrative a story of two vastly different men, one who sought the Lord, who made no move until he received direction from God, and another man who acted as if there was no God, who did what he thought best, who acted for his own ambitions, in fact, ignoring the Word of God. What's your story like? If we were to write a biography of you, where are you today? Where would this chapter end in your life? Is it revealing someone who seeks God and obeys him? Someone who, like David with the men of Jabesh-Gilead, is able to speak Or Does your story reveal someone who is in rebellion against God? A rebellion which actually leads to the ruin of of 360 other men in this text, and many more after that. Friend, if you are drawn to the promise that is in Christ, the promise that in Christ God will forgive you of all your sins and he will use you in his kingdom work, then call out to him. This is a day of salvation. This is a day of rejoicing. The work of God's kingdom is taking place today as we give ourselves to Him, as we order our lives around His truth, let us rejoice in that work and let us run to Him rather than resisting Him. Lord God, we pray that You would be the King who gives life to us, that You would show us that life, that promise in Christ, that indeed that those men, women, or children who are in this room who are apart from you, who, like Abner, are resisting the very things that you are establishing, would humble themselves, would turn and repent, and come running to you. Lord, for the Christian who's suffering, we pray that you would comfort them in the darkness of their soul, that you would whisper to them, that you would help them even when they cannot hear your voice. Give them assurance that you are carrying them and that not for a moment would you forsake them. We ask all this, Lord, because we know that you are constant, that you are good, and that you are sovereign. And we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and let's sing of this great work of God. And if you have questions. Boy, this is, this is what we're all about. Helping other people to know Christ and to follow Him. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you after the service. We've got elders who are here. You can see their faces on the back of your bulletin. Call the office. We'd be happy to talk with you more about what it means to know Christ and to follow Him. Let's sing.